This is Andrew Brewer. I am the host of the Healthcare Insights in Northwest North Carolina podcast, brought to you by Northwest Area Health Education Center at Wake Forest School of Medicine and part of the North Carolina AHEC system. Um, today's guest, uh, renowned in, in our state, he has practiced 40 years of delivering over 8,000 babies in Eastern North Carolina. And so I'm sure he has a lot of stories and, and, and a lot of great insights. And I'm thrilled to have Dr. John Tinga on the podcast. So I'm just going to let you introduce yourself and give the highlights of your, your training. And um, I have a few questions uh, after that. So take it away. Okay. Uh I'm originally from Wilmington, North Carolina. I went to uh, NC State University, and then I later went to the uh, Bowman Gray School of Medicine in Winston-Salem. I also did my uh, residency there, and um, my AHEC affiliation was during the uh, maybe the middle part of my residency. Uh, after that experience, um, I decided to um, partner up with one of my residency buddies, Brian Truluck, and we explored the opportunity to open a OBGYN practice of our own in Newburgh, North Carolina. And since that time, uh, I've uh, practiced 40 years and retired, but the practice um, assimilated uh, more physicians and merged with the other existing practices. So we became the uh, only OBGYN practice in Newburgh at that time. And I uh, retired um, a few years ago, right before the COVID pandemic began. Thank you. First of all, thank you for all your years of service. And my first question is, you, you got your engineering degree from NC State. And what, what made you switch from engineering to medicine? I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I started off going to college, but I was interested in a lot of mechanical things, things like that. And um, an engineering curriculum is very rigorous. And it allows you to uh, take a lot of advanced courses early on in sciences so you can change your mind if you want to. And I was in an honors program at State, and it gave me opportunity to, uh, you know, pigeonhole some pre-med courses in with the engineering courses so I didn't lose any time. You already had that interest in, in medicine. You just weaved it into your program, I see. Right, right. Well, that's, I wasn't real sure what I wanted to do when I was 18 years old, but... Uh, but I uh, evolved with the times and uh, decided to go to medical school. And I was fortunate enough to uh, not lose a lot of time between um, the engineering part of my life and the medical school part. And that's great. What was your experience at uh, Bowman Gray like? Uh, Bowman Gray was great. Uh, I, was, um, I wasn't really familiar with White Forest having gone to NC State, but the medical school there, uh, it was a great experience. I stayed there for my residency. Uh, one of the reasons for that was uh, my wife is from Winston-Salem, so we just decided to stay right there to be around her family and uh, more familiar surroundings. Tell me about your first delivery experience. What was that like? This, this goes way back. Um, back in those days, Forsyth uh, Hospital had the largest obstetrical service in town, and the obstetrical department at the NC Baptist Hospital was smaller in comparison, but there was an affiliation in the works. And I was part of the uh, transition from um, closing the obstetrical service at NC Baptist Hospital and consolidating all the deliveries at Forsyth Hospital. And um, I was over there as a, uh, I think, a third-year medical student, and I was um, taken under the wing of a lot of the 
private physicians at that time. And um, I think I delivered my first baby when I was uh, in a third year medical student uh, at Baptist Hospital. But most of my deliveries during medical school occurred on my rotation at Forsyth Hospital. What do you remember most about that first experience? Well, um, I had obviously didn't know much about what I was doing, but the mentoring was good. And the um, obstetricians were um, more than pleased to have an interested person there to um, do some of the uncomplicated deliveries. So I made a lot of good friends of um, all the staff physicians in OBGYN and Forsyth Hospital at that time, um, in addition to the uh, ones I was with at uh, my residency um, at um, NC Baptist Hospital. So you're there at a moment of you know great joy for the patient. What is something you've learned from that experience and hands-on practicing that can't be taught in school? Well, um, one of the nicest things that happened to me was um, after I had moved to Newburn, um, I actually had a few patients stop by. Um, they heard I was here. They just stopped by to tell me that I had delivered their baby, you know, so many years ago when I was a medical student. That always makes you feel good when somebody has a connection and seeks you out to uh, remind you of that, okay? But um, but I always like the obstetrical practice because it's really a, a primary care specialty that um, deals with what's most of the time a, a very happy event in people's lives. That's an understatement, I think. Um, a quote you said in a recent article, it said, a new physician setting up private practice in a large city now would probably starve unless he has an established practice he can associate himself with. And a doctor has a better chance of establishing a quality practice in one of the smaller towns where his services may be needed more. So that, that kind of mirrors your your experience, uh, I guess, Newburn. What, what, what are your thoughts now about setting up quality practice in small towns versus more urban areas? Well, uh, I think I'll give the same answer now that I gave then. Um, I was in a wave of physicians that had the opportunity to um, have the, you know, private practice fee-for-service model, and that's changing dramatically, as you know, okay? So I think that um, what, what attracts physicians to different practices and all um, is changing over time, and I may not be familiar with the last surveys, but when I was in training, the practice model most people were pursuing um, was either an academic-style affiliation where you're in a place like uh, Bowman Gray, now Atrium Health, where you're actively involved with teaching residents and all that, or you were in some type of a private practice model, usually with a smaller group. But as time went by, the smaller groups became larger and larger. And now I think that most physicians who are in residency are looking for a large group to affiliate with. So I think the establishment of um, small medical groups is um, a thing of the past. Yeah, there may be exceptions for um, maybe a dermatologist or something. They could have a one-man practice without hospital affiliation. But for the most part, uh, most doctors now finishing programs want to either, um, A, stay in the academic institution, or B, uh, be part of a really large organization, whether it's a huge multi-specialty group or um, – a hospital-based practice such as a hospitalist. And um, I may be wrong on the percentages uh, that choose which option, but I don't see, um, I don't hear about people now having any interest at all in starting up a practice um, like we did. 
along those similar lines, you know, what are your thoughts on how access and capacity to rural care could be expanded? Well, um, that's a really interesting point that I thought a lot about. Um, as you know, um, Atrium Health um, is now affiliated with the North Carolina Baptist Hospital and Wake Hospital School of Medicine. And they are at, um, they're, they're one of the biggest healthcare organizations in the country. And they have many hospitals and many other hospitals in um, a town, let's say, the side of the states will kind of act as a feeder hospital into the major hospitals. Mm-hmm. And I think the uh, future of rural health care is going to depend on, um, I call them the giants of health care, like Atrium Health, UNC Health, Duke Health, and these organizations. I, I think the key is going to depend on what kind of partnership can be established with um, those extremely large organizations as to what degree of participation they want in the um, establishment of rural practices, and later on, um, more importantly, um, who's going to staff the practices. So I think that the large organizations are going to be very much a part of that, um, as well as the state of North Carolina, AHEC, et cetera. You also said uh, you were talking about the balance between personal choice and where doctors needed most, and and the traditional thinking about medicine has changed pretty dramatically. Patients are more consumer oriented. The threat of malpractice is much more acute than years ago, and and this notion of practicing defensive medicine, you know what. How much autonomy and and decision making do and, and thinking. Uh, ability that doctors have in regarding treating their patients? I mean, are they just following algorithms or, or what What was your thought about what has changed from traditional uh, thinking about medicine? Well, uh, I, I think that uh, that's a topic that can be discussed for hours and hours, but I think that uh, somebody practicing by themselves um, has autonomy to do most anything they want, Okay. Um, but as the group gets larger, you start losing autonomy because you have to practice with your, you know, fellow physicians. And once you get into a really large organization like your hospitalist or a large hospital system or in a group that's owned by one of the uh, major healthcare industries, uh, you become more and more subject to their algorithms and exactly the way they want you to do things, uh, either by the patients you attract or your practice parameters, okay? So I I think that the autonomy, in my opinion, is something that a lot of the doctors are are willing to give up. And the reason I say that is um, they they know full well what their autonomy will be when they enter, let's say, a 200-physician multi-specialty group in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I think the loss of autonomy is something that um, physicians are um, accepting as time goes forward as evidenced by the practice models they choose to affiliate with. Now, is that a function of just the litigation threats and, and just being more protected? Is that what is I think that as far as the medical malpractice, being an obstetrician, I'm pretty, pretty familiar with that. And um, over time, it has evolved from a system where, um, you know, the doctor uh, had malpractice insurance and the malpractice insurance hired your attorney. And then during the lawsuit, the hospital had an attorney, you had an attorney. But one of the um, features of the new model is that, for instance, um, Atrium Health has their own attorneys for malpractice, okay? I mean, you don't have to choose a lawyer from the community. Your organization 
uh, mm-hmm. provide your attorney. And obviously, um, one of the advantages of that is that, you know, one legal firm is, is um, covering the hospital, physician, et cetera, and you really don't have a choice over that legal team. It's, it's there in place for you. So I think that, um, that that just adds a different dimension to the uh, the malpractice um, situation that um, I suppose has both uh, good and bad features. OBGYN rotation at Catawba Valley Med- Memorial. This is an AHEC-specific question. It was part okay. of your formal rotations as part of your Bowman Gray experience. Um and, and your housing during that time in Hickory was supported by Northwest AHEC. You know, Northwest AHEC prioritizes that kind of support as a way to encourage more rural practice interests. Um, you know, how important was that time in Hickory to your interest in practicing in New Bern? Well, it, it was good because um, I, I never had much of an interest in practicing in a big academic institution like the medical school. So the um, when we went to Hickory, uh, there was a tiny bit of controversy about that because some of my fellow residents um, did not want to go to Hickory because they said they just didn't want to do that, and they were familiar with training programs that had you do that. And they correctly pointed out that when they interviewed for their residency, um, they specifically asked if there were any, you know, rotations in other cities, and they were told no, and that was true at the time. So um, that that didn't bother me because I, I kind of liked the idea of going to Hickory. So when I went to Hickory, uh, I was uh, at the Catawba Hospital, but the town of Hickory also had the Glen R. Fry Hospital, which was kind of a, a competitive situation. And what I learned from that was that although it wasn't a, a university setting, uh, doctors had to make some choices with two hospitals in town. For instance, um, if your patients wanted to live at one hospital versus the other, that meant that when you were on call, you were covering two hospitals. So um, I never considered that an optimal situation, although the Catawba Hospital was a great place for me to be. But when I was looking at Newburgh, uh, Newburgh only had one hospital. And it, it, was, it was a very good regional hospital um, then as it is now, but I did not have to um, divide my practice between two competing hospital systems, okay? So the situation, Hickory pointed that out to me in um, vivid detail. So I think that's what got me interested in a town that just had uh, one hospital, and that one hospital was a good one. Uh, biggest lessons you learned in Hickory that help you help your longevity and success in rural NC. I mean, you kind of alluded to that some in that last answer, but any any more thoughts on that? I was uh, taken under the wing of the, of the physicians that practiced at uh, Catawba Valley, okay, mm-hmm. and um, they were same friends of mine. And um, one of my uh, buddies in residency, Joel Miller, uh, preceded me as the first resident who went to Hickory, and he actually decided to um, stay at Hickory for his whole career after he was recruited uh, by one of the groups that practiced at Catawba. So um, that that was kind of how the system worked, and um, I certainly had that model to compare to my going to Newburn and establishing a practice of my own. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, let's talk about health insurance and, and health insurance companies and how that's evolved over the last 40 years of your practice. What what have you noticed about that? What are your thoughts? Um, do health insurance companies have too much sway in the medical system? 
I'm going to break that down in kind of two parts. Um, one is the private, the private insurance business like Blue Cross Blue Shield. The other might be uh, like a Medicaid as an OBGYN. I was familiar with Baby Love Medicaid, which is a Medicaid system kind of set up for indigent people. Okay, but I think that the um, in my day, each practice had to negotiate their own contract with the insurance companies. And that was one of the biggest hassles associated with it because you knew full well that the insurance companies were paying different practitioners in the same town different amounts of money for the same work. And that was a hassle throughout my career as it was a career of um, other you know, physicians in private practice. But with the um, evolution of the really large healthcare systems, uh, the doctors don't have to worry about that anymore because obviously, uh, you know, Atrium Health and UNC Health has a whole different relationship with Blue Cross than a um, physician's office would. So I've noticed that evolution, and it has um, many features, I suppose, that are good or bad, depending on your point of view. But I think that the uh, way insurance companies pay for care in large areas versus small areas and Medicaid and, you know, Medicaid eligibility and those things were a part of my daily life as an independent practitioner, but but once you affiliate with a larger group, um, all that goes away. I mean, you, you might not like uh, what your deal eventually turns out to be, but there's really nothing you can do about it at that point. Is that one of the incentives for people to join uh, larger prices, just to get that headache off their hands? Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that and the uh, malpractice coverage. Okay, switch gears again. Uh, you've participated in a few of our CME activities over the years for you know continuing education credits and and those kinds of things, um, like the annual lock symposium. Tell us about your experience with those. What did you enjoy about the continuing education? Experience? Well, uh, continuing education um, is a very important part of uh, any professional's life, and I believe that. Um, I start off at the uh, I start off with the integration of the large healthcare systems. When a when a physician in a private practice, especially a small practice, wants to do a CME, he has to make sure he can take the time off. He has to make sure he has coverage and um, a lot of decisions like that. Once you get to the big systems, um, they say here's the way your vacations work. Here's the way your CME works. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Okay, but but having said that, I always enjoy the autonomy of um, going to the CME activities that I wanted to participate in. I mean, you, you could get the credit hours from numerous sources, but with uh, my wife being from Winston-Salem and my desire to maintain contact with those I trained with, um, going back to Winston-Salem was always an easy choice to make. So um, so I, I think that was, was a good CME activity and gave me a chance to meet a lot, of, see a lot of people again that I'd trained with in the past. That's great. That's great. Thanks for that. Um, tell us more about your most rewarding moments and career achievements. Well, you know, um, you did deliver a lot of babies, and um, they're always special. And you, uh, in gynecology, you, you remember um, a lot of those patients, too, such as those that present with emergencies and malignancies and these type of things that you can um, come up with a disposition. And if you can't handle it yourself, you could always um, establish a relationship with a large medical institution. In my situation here in Newburn, uh, most of my referrals uh, obstetrically went to um, Greenville and the gynecologic malignancies especially went to UNC. 
So I received a lot of satisfaction of dealing with the accepting positions of um, what turned out to be uh, mutually cared for patients. So um, that was one thing that um, that I enjoyed about my practice, okay, as far as um, the dividing them up uh, between OB and GYN. But the, but the biggest thing I think I gained from my practice is, um, believe it or not, 40 years ago, I think was um, the time that the ability to set up a private practice on your own without affiliation was ending. I was fortunate enough to set up my practice. I was fortunate enough to see it grow. Uh, we merged with other practitioners in town. We incorporated new positions into the practice. Um, and I was also, uh, when I retired, I retired after 40 years, um, the hospital-based physician practice, et cetera, where we were growing at that time, and it was pre-pandemic, okay? So I think that as far as the uh, post-World War II traditional model of medical practice, for instance, um, like-minded physicians um, associating in small groups delivering care at the hospital, um, that was the model for, for decades. But I was, um, I was able to participate in that model from the beginning of my practice to the end of it without ever having to join the hospital or a larger group. Well, I think professionally um, that that was my biggest satisfaction was um, starting a very own practice from scratch, seeing it grow, and not having to make the decision to affiliate with a larger hospital system. Yeah, that's that's great. What what are your thoughts? I mean, you have a wealth of knowledge. What are your thoughts and advice for today's health science students that that are thinking about going into medical practice? Well, I am I am chagrined by the fact that so many people are leaving the profession, especially those in hospital settings, because of COVID. I hear that I hear the statistics on television. I'm blown away that there are tens of thousands of people leaving the profession, and um, I'm not sure how many of them are going to come back in. So, as far as a wide open profession to go into, um, healthcare is it at this time, and uh, and I'm a big believer that. Um, it's not only physicians people have to um, think about. Uh, we had uh, we integrated nurse midwifery in our practice, and I think that that is the very best model for obstetrics to have is a uh, midwifery, a uh, uh, significant midwifery presence. So, um, so I think that physicians are needed. Uh, you know, the MDs, the DOs, uh, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, uh, certified nurse midwives. I think it's going to be a tremendous need for all of those specialties going forward. And I think that um, it's going to be a challenge to recruit um, to those um, professions, especially as the COVID pandemic is turned into an endemic situation. So I will watch that with interest um, because um, I've seen this a certain ball for many years, and I just want to see how the profession adapts to this. But if, but if, but if you're interested in healthcare, it's a wide open field. And um, and you'll be faced with the challenges of, uh, you know, where you get your training uh, and then later on, whether you're going to try to work in a smaller entity or a giant entity. And I think that the people who are contemplating these healthcare careers uh, really need to um, look at the whole picture. I mean, not just choosing an area of interest in your training, but also um, where you want to practice. And what type of um, organization do you want to be affiliated with? So I think those are the major challenges for those entering the healthcare industry now. 
what have you noticed about technology over your career? Uh, how has that uh, helped and how has that hindered? What, what, what are the biggest breakthroughs uh, that you've seen? Well, um, being, being a former engineer, I'm all about technology. And I'm using obstetrics, for example. The ability in obstetrics to do fetal monitoring remotely is, a, is an incredible benefit that's evolving all the time. For instance, it began out west where people were so dispersely populated where pregnant women could put themselves on a monitor and somebody at a remote location could monitor um, their obstetrical situation, both from the standpoint of how the baby was doing and whether they might be in labor or not. So that technology is unbelievable. Um, and as far as the surgery is concerned, the robotic surgery, et cetera, um, has transformed the practice. There is no question that the technology in all those areas has made a tremendous difference going forward. So I think that all the practitioners are going to have to be literate in the technology because it's here to stay. Wow, that remote monitoring does sound like a, a wonderful tool. It, it, was that been deployed in, in rural environments? I mean, rural NC? Uh, not, not around here. I think the people that pioneered that were in places like Utah and Nevada, where people were living 200 miles away from a small health department. And you have to tell them, um, you know, bundle up everybody, come to the hospital. We have no, we have no way of looking at you. But with the uh, the telehealth options and the remote field of monitoring, um, you can um, reassure a certain percent of those people that they probably don't need to make the trip during a snowstorm and do it safely. So um, I think that that's probably uh, coming to these areas, um, but but not as quickly as it did out west. If there's one thing you could change about medical service to rural NC residents, what would it be? Gosh, oh, well, I'll tell you what somebody told me a long time ago. I had somebody from a really small um, part of eastern North Carolina that used Newburn and Greville as their source of everything. And I was kind of being somewhat apologetic um, about the fact that it was so long to, took so long to get to the office and all this, that, and the other. And the guy said, you know what, Dr. Tingy? He said, I farm, and I live with the fact that i got to drive an hour and a half to either Wilson or Rocky Mount to um, get to parts of my tractor, okay? So he, he said that um, people who live in the remote rural areas um, have to take that into account for everything, you know, going to the doctor, going to the vet, uh, going to buy parts and everything else. So there, there's you, you have to accept that. And I know that um, I'm, I know more about ECU than most people because that was my primary referral for obstetrics for decades, okay? And their, uh, when they became a medical school, their mandate was to train as many physicians as possible to stay in rural areas. And they have done very well, uh, but they've still fallen short, okay, simply because the staff in the rural areas is still a big issue. So uh, I think one of the, um, and this is a question I'll ask you and the rest of the panel, is um, what is uh, UNC Healthcare or Atrium Healthcare's view of their responsibility to their feeder system of hospitals. I mean, for instance, um, all these organizations will have a hospital in, let's say, um, a town of 5,200,000 people, which isn't really a small town, that affiliate with them. Uh, for instance, uh, our hospital is now affiliated with UNC. Um, but what is their um, view of staffing a place, let, let's say, Vanceboro, okay, or Trenton, which are areas that are 
you know, have a population of 10,000 that are still in the area that I normally do their business here in Newburn or Greenville. So I think that as the, um, the, the big providers in your situation, Atrium, what do they perceive their responsibility? Okay, because I, I can see it working several ways. I'm just not sure which way they may or may not be interested in, okay, providing this care. So, um, so that, that, is what, that is one of the true challenges that is out there. Well, I'll let Michael come on and, and... yeah, hi, it's, uh, it's uh, Dr. Lischke. Um, at the risk of trying to speak for our our big system, which I would never do, um, but what I do know as fact is there are lots of conversations around expanding, oh, yeah. or expanding, re- particularly residency training um, sure. into into those smaller hospitals. So mm-hmm. we have. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, Catawba Valley Medical Center still remains owned by Catawba County. It's right. one of the last one of the last hospitals, I think, in the state that, mm-hmm. that can make that claim. So they're fiercely independent. They do a lot right. with all the systems around. Um, we have uh, and we were same with uh, Hugh Chatham up in Elkin. Um, sure. Very. We do a lot of work with them um educationally and collectively both uh Hugh Chatham and Wake Forest Atrium co-own Allegheny Hospital in Sparta. And sure. you know um they're they're moving services that are needed up in Sparta. Mm-hmm. And the last the, the most recent one I heard particularly was around um joint replacement surgeries taking place now oh, yeah. in that little that little the little hospital up in Sparta, North Carolina. So they see it sure. they they clearly see it as um part of their the mission. And it's, you know, um same thing I think we could we, we could say for, you know, the other big systems in the state, including uh, you know, UNC healthcare, uh just as if just like they have they have uh partnered with um the hospital where you were in New Bern. So I think well, everybody is I think everybody is um, sees that as part of the their mission because you can't have a, a, a vacuum of services and then a concentration of services in the big town like that. That's not yeah. real well. So I think as everything, when it gets down to residency education, and I think both you and, and Dr. Miller are um, certainly examples of kind of investing in residency programs that provide those kind of rural um, experiences because it's a whole different game in in those places than it is at the academic hub, you know, as part of the medical school. So I think they're all working on that. I think everybody's got their own strategy on how to do that. Um, And it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next couple of years, particularly around the uh, the healthcare um, professional uh, void that we're seeing in just right, in just right. sheer numbers is just right. I, I think we're going to have we're going to all have to learn how to uh, educate differently and quite honestly practice mm-hmm. differently. So. Right. Well, well, something else is part and parcel to that. Using my own little medical world here in Newburn is when uh, when I started my practice, the concept of traveling providers did not exist, okay? I mean, you know, now hospitals, they're short on, well, before the pandemic, they were short on nurses. They would just choose a national service 
And they would hire a nurse from um, Toledo, Ohio, to come to work in the nursery for uh, six months. So the, 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 the traveling philosophy. And also, I think that by sending the residents as part of their training out to these areas, uh, they will get a firsthand view like Joel and I did to what it's like. And then they can either decide to do that or return to the mothership in a more cloistered academic environment. But the number of travelers, I think, is going to increase dramatically. Yeah. And for instance, um, the UNC system has a really good affiliation here in Newber now with the oncologist. And they actually send attendings from UNC here on a regular basis. Now, whether or not it's every other week or every other Thursday or something like that, but that is still in flux. But they're, they're meeting the need by actually having physicians that don't mind, you know, driving to an outlying area for a given amount of time and driving back. And, for instance, the, in the Newman situation, the hospitals here are virtually all travelers. Okay, the hospital has like a, a, a apartment building somewhere, and these doctors come to stay in the apartment building, and they learn the way from the apartment building to the hospital and back very well. And they have um, varying degrees of commitment uh, that they might, they might want to re-up and stay here, you know, month after month, year after year, or do their three to six months and move on. But I think the utilization of the travelers at all levels of care is going to be one place where the large organizations can do a much better job. In other words, I think HUM Health could find a doctor to work for three months in Sparta than the people in Sparta might be able to do because of that, that's one of their advantages because they can specifically recruit people um, for that purpose. But, but to me, that's the biggest challenge. You know, if you can't get somebody to live in a small area, can you get them to go there for three or four months at a time um, or some other interval of time but live somewhere else? Because we see that all the time in my community. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're right on target. I think, you know, ideally – the days of everybody living in the community where you practice, um, that's a, that's a rough, that's rough when you've got, you know, dual professional households, um, right. and, in in kids and, you know, the whole, the whole thing. And, um, we've, we've spent, you know, the AHEC system across North Carolina, all, all nine regional AHEX, um, we've spent these last 50 years trying to address that. And I think quite right. honestly, and I think we've hit the nail on the head in several cases. Um, but I think the reality is there are a lot of um, non-controllable factors in that. And you certainly right. don't you certainly don't want to ever. I mean, all the years that I've been in medical school, you certainly never want to, um, you know, require students to make a lifelong commitment. That's not fair to them. Right. That's not fair to anybody. Right. right. So I think I think it's that. It's it, there. There's there's so many things that that can be done, and you know, let's face it. Everybody is every student, every healthcare professional. Right. Um, they have their own way, and you've got to kind of try to meet right. them exactly where they are, and and be as supportive as you can, as we can, for them to yeah. stick around. So, it's uh, it's certainly the challenge that keeps us coming to work every day. That's for certain. Right. Well, I, that, that just that reminds me of something that I faced here in Newburgh when I first came here. Um, I, I was not recruited to come to Newburgh. I, I knew a couple of people here. Uh, you might know Joe Overby. Uh, he was a he he started a, he helped start a, a family practice here in Newburgh a year or two before I got here. Yeah, so absolutely. I knew him. But I didn't know very so I didn't know very many people. 
when I was um, contacted by the hospital, and they said, I, we, we hear you're looking to come to Newburn. So I said, yeah, I'll meet with you. And I, about five minutes into the conversation, the, the hospital administrator said, well, Dr. Tinga, uh, do you plan on joining a, joining a church and buying a house here in Newburn? <laughs> And I said, and I said yes, and yes. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so, 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 so that that was here a fairly direct way of seeing what my commitment was going to be to the area. Because you know, I, I came with the idea of staying. I didn't yep. come with the idea of giving it a shot. Okay. And that was his way of kind of um, getting me on record as what I wanted to do. And it turned out the hospital was very facilitating to me. Okay, that that they helped pay us for some of the indigent deliveries we were doing, and they were they, they were very very nice to us. Okay, about coming here, but but there again, but 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 that was back in 1978. So the same questions were the same questions are being asked is just now. I think that the um, I'd be interested in a statistic about if you look at the big hospital systems, like you look at uh, NC Baptist, like whatever residency program, but you look at a place like Wake Med, that is not really integrated like a university would be how many of their physician staff or travelers paid for by the hospital you know it has to be new but it's virtually 100 percent. okay i mean not none of the local physicians um are hospitals at a hospital anymore okay that they're all people that hospital hires with um you know multiple contractual obligations so i think that's that that's the truest challenge and for instance if you have a clinic in, let's say, Vanceboro, who works in the clinic? Well, ideally, it would be a nurse practitioner or two that were born and raised in Vanceboro. Well, that don't work most of the time. So then you're looking at somebody who makes a trip from Newburn every day to go to Vanceboro, or you look at somebody that is hired to work there for six months and then deciding whether they want to stay there or not. So I think those are the biggest, biggest decisions to make, and I think the commitment from the um, big groups like Atrium Health, that concept is going to be key. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you know the the days of the community being able to really um, recruit and retain health professionals without some right. serious uh, without some serious resources. Um, you right. know, I think I think those days are are behind us, and um, I think we've got a lot to learn. Um, as we kind of move forward with this stuff, but I mean, it's the, the traveling, um, the traveling nursing right now is, is just off the charts. The numbers. It is. Um, it is. I, I remember a, a buddy of mine back in the day was a male nurse and his wife was a nurse too, but he showed me some nursing journals he had. He showed me some nursing journals from the early eighties and maybe the back four or five pages of the publication were traveling opportunities and then he showed me the one that came in the mail last week and it was an entire supplement to the publication i mean it was a different magazine the the yeah. the, the, the nursing journal came and then the nursing journal's magazine for nurse openings came okay so yeah so it, it is a phenomenal industry now for travelers and again it's it's not i, I don't think that's Quite honestly, the the magic answer. I think that's that can work in a short term, right? Um, and yeah. I think it is. I think it is working short term, but yeah, that's not sustainable. I mean, it's just not sustainable. Right. When I mean the the numbers that I heard yeah. was last week. Well, 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 I'll give you another example too about the situation here. I'm not going to name practices or anything, but 
a lot of the a lot of the practices, like mine, for instance, uh, when they were looking for people, uh, we lucked out. Uh, we just happened to have people who were from this immediate area want to come back and do obstetrics and gynecology. So we were very lucky in that regard. Uh, but some other groups, especially some of the surgery groups, were having a really hard time recruiting from a residency program, let's say, at Duke or White Forest or UNC. And when you ask them about it, they'd say, well, look, uh, these guys are getting offers from, from people practicing in Winston-Salem and Greensboro and Raleigh, and they're expecting to start off at our salary. Yep. Okay? So, so, so there's just no room for them to move up. And but because of that, you know, I really like moving just fine, um, but I can make a whole lot more money if I base myself in Raleigh. Well, the hospital starts hiring the daughters, and guess what? Uh, the hospitals hire the same daughter as a lost leader simply because he does so much surgery in the hospital. Yep. Okay, well, you know, a, a private group can't do that. I mean, a private group has no interest in subsidizing the hospital. Yeah. So, I, so I, I think those are the. Uh, key decisions and people have to make, but fortunately, I did not have to deal with. Well, I, yeah. I did when I was on the hospital board. Okay, I did, I did then. But, but it seems like to me that's all they talk about now. And I, and I know that um, um, I, I know some of the administrators at Atrium Health that because uh, his father was a physician here in Newburn, and we talk about things that they deal with, and it is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, just the sheer numbers. I mean, Atrium Health must employ 100,000 people. Is that, is that about right? I think I think we're around 70,000 right now. But, yeah, you it's, it's, it's up there. It's 70 to 80, but, but, but you know, now all those aren't physicians, but the number of physicians they employ is staggering. Yep. So, yep. Um, so I, I, I think that uh, whether people like the model or not, I think that's the one for the near future. Yeah, I think, you know, again, I'm a, I'm a public health guy by training and background. And, and mm -hmm. what, what strikes me, and, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, what strikes me is that at some point in probably this, the 80s, your, the local hospital went from being thought of as the charity of choice in the community because everybody loved the local hospital. And now, right. it's, now it's considered a big corporate business. And right. no, no longer the favored charity. And I think it gets to right. patients, you know, or consumerism as being a patient, um, just like um, when I when I go shopping for something else kind of a thing. So I think it's I think there's a balancing shift that, that that's my perspective. Do you, well, have you have well, you seen the same? Well, in my community, um, the UNC affiliation is very recent. I mean, it's been within the last year or so. OK. So, so the fierce independent spirit that existed in Catawba existed here too. But you know, uh, but after a while, you see the handwriting on the wall as these groups get bigger and bigger. So uh, I know in the local paper they made a huge thing that we're affiliated with UNC, but we did not sell the hospital to UNC because it's such a hot topic. And like I said before, one of the things that attracted me to Newburn is if you're a doctor in Newburn. You practiced at uh, Carolina's Medical Center. That, that there was no other option. Like for instance, when Joel Miller went to Hickory, he could, he could go to uh, Glen R. Fry or Catawba, and it, it's just a patient-driven choice. So, um, but I didn't have to face the issue of two hospitals here. But but you're right about the loyalty of the community to some of the hospitals that have been here forever. Uh, with that, I'm going to switch gears a little bit, uh, Dr. Tinga, and um, okay. 
I read that you were uh, your hobbies were wood woodworking and gardening, and I just wanted right. you to tell us more about that and how have those hobbies played a role enhanced your medical practice. Okay, this is a very pedestrian argument. Okay, but uh, as a if you garden and if you do gardening and things like that, or working in your woodworking shop, um, I didn't have but one partner for several years. I was on call 180 times a year. And with those hobbies, if you had to go to the hospital, you could just put down what you're doing and leave. And that was a tremendous advantage because, for instance, if my hobby was deep sea fishing, uh, <laughs> there's no way I, there's no way I could take a call from the coast of Cape Hatteras. So I think that um, as far as my um, childhood was concerned, um, my my parents, my my father's side of the family, they're in the nursery and farming business anyway. And that's where I got my interest in the uh, gardening and things like that. And I, I grew up next to a woodworking shop where I worked when I was, um, you know, a very young boy, just cleaning up, et cetera. And I, I learned how to use all the woodworking machines when I was, you know, 12, 14 years old. So that carried forward um, as my hobby going forward because um, I was able to um, either work in my garage or the shop and just, you know, make furniture and things like that. But I think the key reason that I like those hobbies to start with was the fact that they um, they were easy to put down and going about my business. So um, I just followed the lead that I established back in those days. What is the, uh, of all your years of, of practice, what's the greatest lesson you've learned about life and people? I always, this is COVID-related, okay, I always knew that patients had different ideas on things. But the COVID situation has really amplified that because the I know that my buddies were still practicing, my old group, they have the fight about the patients who got COVID vaccines and those that didn't, that they have it every hour, that they have it every hour. And I think one of the biggest realizations to me were, um, and this is this is a great AHEC lead-in too, is um, I thought we did a great job in our practice in a one-on-one situation you know, you get the lady, you sit her down, you tell her that you're, you're six months pregnant, um, you really need to get this vaccine or something like that. I, I think we did as, as good a job as you could possibly do, talking to the lady and her husband and all like that. And still, 30, 40% of them just they don't believe in vaccines, okay? So the, the, those are very, um, that, that was a big realization to me because, you know, um, we can get vaccines now against HPV. Um, people, some people bring their children in, most don't. Uh, the standard, you know, tetanus vaccines and all this kind of stuff that all pregnant women are supposed to get, some do and some don't. So I, reckon, so I know that one of my biggest surprises was that um, even though most of your patients may comply with what you recommend, a significant number don't. And I think that's a big lesson of the COVID thing. And with AHEC, you know, being in an educational situation for people in rural areas, and, uh, and I just don't know how um, I could have done a better job in my office convincing people about the right thing to do. And I wonder how AHEC thinks they, they're going to manage in the future with being the source of um, education and directing of health care in a rural area. So that, 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 that remains one of my biggest unanswered questions now that I've retired about how health care is going to go. But um, but uh, we always all doctors know you have to accept the fact that a lot of patients aren't going to take your advice. But I, I never realized it was that many, and that, that that was a big lesson to me. Sounds like you had a question and a challenge in there for us, so we'll we'll do our best as well. Um, what what uh, 
joys and challenges do you look forward to in your retirement? Well, my grandchildren, my, my, my grandchildren um, are live in Charleston, and that is a medically rich area as well. And I got to know them real well because I did a lot of CME stuff in Charleston um, as my grandchildren were growing up. But seeing my children and grandchildren grow up and to, uh, you know, continue my hobbies and all that, that that's my biggest day-to-day. But, I, but I'm still very interested in the, uh, I'd say, interested from afar in keeping up with my own medical community here and um, seeing things evolve um, over time like I saw them evolve from 1979 to 2019. Thanks for that. Dr. Tega, unless Michael, do you have any other questions you want to ask? I just want to thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tinga. And again, it's it's funny how um, on, on most days um, I'm a social media, uh, I'm very skeptical of social media, but in this case, um, it helps us connect. And, and I'm very appreciate oh, yeah. that fact very much. So. Thank you. Well, I'll tell you, when I got the call from my daughter, uh, I was really interested because um, I, 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 see, I see Joel Miller frequently, okay? And our, our wives are both named Nancy, and they keep up um, a lot. And yeah. I remember um, Joel, uh, you know Joel, don't you? Oh, I'm very much so. He is, yeah, he is yeah, an yeah. icon. Yeah, he 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 was he's, uh, he was a little year or two ahead of me in residency, but we we're best friends, okay? And I remember that... Uh, when he was, when we were training, uh, a lot of people have to decide whether they're uh, they want to pursue the academics or, or leave the practice or something, or, or leave go into practice. And I, I think Joel, like most of us, um, pondered that question. But when he went to Hickory, that was it for him because you know, he he was successful, okay. And I think he met a couple of guys there that um, you know recruited him to go back there to work. So uh, I'm not sure whether or not he would have gone there or not. I assure you, they have affiliation was um, a, a powerful motivator. So, so that that was one person that I think could have um, gone any place he wanted to practice and done well. Okay, but but, but he he chose um, you know Hickory for um, multiple reasons, including the fact that he was bivouac there for three months and he was a residency to see everything about it. All right. Well, again, Dr. Tango, we thank you for your years of dedication and, and honor you for your service to citizens of North Carolina and beyond. And, and you're a beautiful human being. And, and I hope to cross paths with you one day in real life. So, yeah, well, I, I hope we will sometime, too. That's one thing about COVID. Uh, I, I adhere to all the rules. And um, uh, especially during the first part of the pandemic, we, we didn't do much traveling because um, if you were tired, you don't have a job to go to anymore. So I, I respected the challenges of that. Okay, but as this um, becomes more and more of an endemic situation, I plan to get out more and more to, um, you know, just be more available to the public as far as just getting out and moving around. Well, good. We need to see more of you then. That sounds great. Okay. Really appreciate your time this morning, and thanks again. And and again, we appreciate your time. And then it took almost exactly an hour, so I don't know if that was good or bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's good. All right. You take care. Have a, hope you have a great day. Thank you.